Well, for the last few weeks, we've been in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is part three, going through chapter 15. In the first part, when we started this chapter off, Paul made a defense of the resurrection. The three defenses he gave was first, the Corinthians testimony, second, the scriptures themselves, and then third, in my opinion, most important, the eyewitness accounts of his resurrection, how many had seen it, including Paul himself. And that's going to be very important when we come into play today. Then part two, last week, we talked about the death and resurrection of the Lord. And we talked about our resurrection. In the first resurrection with the rapture of the church. Part two with the tribulation saints after the tribulation, their resurrection. And then we talked about the second resurrection or the resurrection of the damned at the great white throat judgment. That every human being is going to be resurrected. And so... A few weeks ago, our first part was mostly emphasized on apologetics, making a defense for the resurrection. Last week was more theological, the study of the Bible and the eschatology, the end times, how it's going to take place. Today, it's going to be a practical application. What does this mean for us that we will be resurrected? So let's go before the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to read verses 35 through 41 together. Lord, we pray As we look at the deep questions of life, Lord, the purpose, the meaning for what we're going through, what it all is going to to mean at the very end, Lord, we pray that you would be speaking to us directly, that we'd be receiving from your word, and that you would receive all the glory and honor that you are due. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read verses 35 through 41 together. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that the body shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. One of the greatest philosophers of our time, my grandfather, he said, you know, Mike, there's, there's nothing afterwards, you know, there's nothing up there, there's nothing down there. And for my grandfather, you know, he is one of the most inspirational people in my life. I have learned so many things. Uh, many of them are lined up with the scriptures, whether he knew it or not. But there's many people that think like he has. I, I won't claim he thinks that way today, I don't know. But I remember that conversation. And I also know that many of us are haunted with the same thing. The pagans of this world the non-believers of this world, will tell us that when you die, that's just just the end of all suffering. You know, nothing happens afterwards. You just disappear. You just go into the grave, and then it's all over. But what is the point of life if it is nothing? Notice that Paul has a rhetorical question. He says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And we need to remember in Corinth, They were dealing with the exact same questions and issues that we are. The Christians were a small minority. And 
Corinthian and Greek culture told them that there was no resurrection of the dead, that that's just silly things that tell people tell each other to feel good about themselves. My grandfather came from a generation that had just made it through World War II and the Great Depression. They had seen the most horrible atrocities happening, not in some distant land, not in a history book, but in their neighborhood. And of course, they were going to be looking at those things and say, why? Why? There, there, there can't possibly be anything, any purpose to this, this evilness. Now, in Corinth, they had the same philosophers saying the same things. The auditoriums were there where the Greek philosophers were saying pretty much the same thing about their pagan gods. Now, Solomon in the Old Testament is the richest man who ever lived. He's also the wisest man who ever lived. He wanted for nothing hundreds of women, mansions, gold, silver. He had everything. And what did he say when he fell away from the Lord? In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, he said, Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity is a vanity. All is vanity. That word vanity means meaningless, pointless. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. All the rivers run into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. To the place which the rivers come, there they return again. All things are full of labor. Men cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. Now, it was in ancient times when Solomon penned these words. Apart from God, he realized all the money, all the pleasure, all the stuff, life itself is completely pointless. There's no meaning to any of it. What is the point of getting a medal in battle for a country that would disappear? A soldier in the Ottoman Empire, only at the end of World War I to see that government disappear. To win a, a Prussian honor in World War I, only to have Germany completely changed. Or even here, locally, the Confederacy to give your life for a country that would never exist. Well, what is the point of running a business or getting retirement, having kids if they're all just going to be swallowed by the grave? Now, not only do we have this pressure on us, we have this pressure on our mind because we too face these doubts. Why am I alive? What is the point? What does this all work together for? And remember, in Corinth, they had the philosophers that were saying the same things that we deal with today. It's unfortunate. In the 21st century, we like to think that, oh, we've attained to this maturity. We're smarter now than ever. They've been saying these things for millennia. They were saying them in the auditoriums, in the amphitheaters there in Greece. And these are the very same questions that Paul is going to to answer. Now, this same philosophy Paul had been talking about all the way in chapter 1. You guys remember that five years ago when we started this book? 
chapter 1, Paul addresses the philosophy of this day, and he realizes what the gospel sounds like in that culture. In chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, he said, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has, God, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, for in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Foolishness. And yet it is a fact. Remember, Paul's own testimony, he was a Christ hater. But how did that change? He saw the Lord face to face on the road to Damascus, and he radically changed from being a Christ hater and a Christian destroyer who he arrested, who threw into prison, who tortured and made people recant the faith. He met the Lord Jesus Christ and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And since that time, he preached and taught the gospel in a, in a pagan world that taught the very same philosophies that we wrestle against. And it's just sad to me. This is my own personal opinion. It is just sad to me that for millennia, let that, let that sink in, because I don't think we really think about that. Not a decade, not a lifetime, not a century Thousands upon thousands of years, the faith has been dealing with these most difficult questions of life. And the church in America today is like, well, we got fog machines. And people wonder why. They're leaving the faith. You see, on one side, you have a group of people that says, well, all the nice things we say about each other after they die, they're all just nice things that we pat each other on the back to make us feel good. But it's, it's all nothing. But on the other side, we say, well, you know, you're going to be raised again. You're going to be resurrected. You're going to be in the presence of God. And they think, well, that's just nice things that they say to each other to make themselves feel good. And you may be wrestling in and of yourself with the same thing. See, the atheist will come to us and will say, well, you say you're going to be resurrected. But, you know, maybe a thousand years ago, a sailor died in the ocean and his corpse was in the water, a fish came and ate him, then a man caught the fish and he ate him. So how is that person going to be resurrected now that it's been 5,000 years later or 3,000 years later? Okay, we'll answer that question in a little while. Put a, put a pin in that one. But Paul goes from this question, some will say there's no resurrection of the dead, and then what does he go into? He says that, don't you know, that when our bodies are put into the ground, that just like you would put a seed in the ground, it comes out completely different. Well, let's use my Dutch family. You know, my grandfather, they come from the Netherlands, told you they come from World War II. Now, they literally planted and grew tulips. Have you ever seen a tulip bulb? It is the ugliest mass in the world. Nobody says, hey, stop and smell the seeds. Nobody says, look at the beautiful seeds. They're hideous. They're ugly. And tulip bulbs, they're hairy looking. You plant them in the ground. Fun fact, if the, if the ground is dry, you know, if you put a board over it before it 
sprouts. It'll stay wet. That's what we used to do in our backyard, grow those things. But how does it come out? That is a beautiful, beautiful flower, completely different from that tulip bulb. When our physical, terrestrial bodies are placed into the ground, and we weep because we've lost the presence, we've lost the fellowship of our loved ones. And we say to each other, don't worry, they're in a better place. They're with the Lord now. Are we just trying to make each other feel good? We wrestle against that doubt. Where did they really go? We have the fact of the resurrection to lean back on. That Jesus Christ died and rose again. And that eyewitnesses saw him, 500 of them. And they were so radically changed, they went into all the world preaching the gospel. We have Paul himself who is penning these words. He's writing them down to Corinthians. He met. He literally saw the Lord Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus. He was so radically changed that he would change his entire life and write these words, these encouraging words. And he says, listen, when we get put into the ground, we're going to be raised again. I know because I saw the man who did it first. That which my hands have handled, my eyes have seen, the word of life, God. Not only is he using this illustration of the seed in the ground, Jesus used the illustration himself. In John chapter 12, verse 23 through 25, he said, But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This isn't a philosophical exercise. This isn't like, well, you know, let's reason ourselves into the kingdom. Whether you believe it or not, if you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be resurrected just like he was. You will live forever. You will be in eternity from everlasting to everlasting. So what about our friend, the atheist? God breathed into the dirt and brought forth Adam. In fact, Paul's going to use that illustration now in verses 42 through 49. He says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, and it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. When the Lord created Adam, he found the dirt in the ground and he breathed life into it. 
And Adam came out of the dirt in the image of Jesus Christ because the Bible says in Genesis they made, that God made man in our image, Elohim, the compound union. And the same way he will breathe life into those molecules. Now, where will those molecules go? Where will it come from? How will he bring them all together? I have no earthly idea. He is God in the heavens. That's the answer. The same way that he puts the sun into the sky and has the earth rotate around it in a circuit, the same way he has the moon rotating around the planet, he holds all things that exist and consist. And he can breathe into the dirt and bring forth Adam. He can pull Eve out of his side. How did he do that? I have no earthly idea. He can take two cells in the womb of a woman and grow a human being. He can place the galaxies into the universe just to show how glorious he is. He is going to raise us. And this is when we start identifying. This is when we start taking this home. You are going to rise again. You will be resurrected. Not because we feel like it, not because we need a comfort, not because we're going to hold our hands together and clip and we're going to tap our shoes together and say, I hope I'm resurrected. I hope I'm resurrected. No, we are going to follow the lion of the tribe of Judah who rose from the grave. He died on a cross, was buried in in a tomb, and started walking around, and everybody saw him. And in a like manner, we too will be placed into the ground, these terrestrial bodies, these physical bodies. And then one day they will be taken up into the sky. It is interesting that scientists have taken bodies of people as they're dying. They've weighed them to see how much a soul weighs. Spoiler alert, that there's no difference. They have put them to EKGs and, and measured their body in wavelengths. They're, they're trying to scientifically discover the soul. But they can't. They can't figure it out. But we are body and soul. We are physical and spiritual. And we have to remember that it is the Spirit of God that has been breathed in us, as it said in Genesis 2-7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. You know, when we die, all of our cells, they stop moving. Our, our lungs stop. Our hearts stop contracting. The brain waves stop. And there is your body. And there is your body. But your soul has departed. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for the believer. Remember in verse 46, as it's written here, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward, the spiritual. So what of this spiritual and physical divide? The atheist tells us that the spiritual things are all just made up. That it's all just to comfort ourselves. But can you see what a star looks like without a telescope? I mean, you see it glowing in the sky. The Bible here just told us in the previous section that one glory of one star is different from another. How do they know that? What about cells? Can you see cells without a microscope? Can you see infrared or ultraviolet lights without having special devices? Can you hear the sound of a dog whistle? Or if you're me, you can't even hear regular voices half the time. 
But we do not have the faculties to see the spiritual realm, and yet it does exist. How do we know? Well, we know through the Holy Spirit. We know through the Word of God. We know through prayer. We know through miracles. But most importantly, we know because a man who claimed to be the very image of God, equal with God the Father, said that he was going to die for three days and he was going to come back to life, and then he did as was prophesied by hundreds of prophecies that are impossible. It's so impossible that the people that are around and saw it happen gave their entire lives. His apostles, his disciples, confessed this truth until their violent ends because they were so dramatically changed. And so when we are placed into the ground or put into that kiln or we're made into ashes, it doesn't matter. Take my... Take my body, spread it around. Let's, let's really make it fun for the Lord. I am going to be resurrected. You are going to be resurrected. And we are going to live from everlasting to everlasting. Not just spiritual, but this physical body is going to be a new creation. More beautiful than any flower coming from these ugly seeds. Maybe not yours. Maybe I'm the ugly one here. We'll just leave that there. And so Paul continues now in verses 50 through 55. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Yes, many believe that we will just simply disappear, but that is a lie from the pit of hell. That is us just thinking happy thoughts. For the non-believer, they too will live for eternity. From everlasting to everlasting, although it will not be in paradise. It will be in a place of torment, separated from God the Father. Our souls cannot be destroyed. They are the breath of God. How can Paul pen these words? He lived and saw the things that he is proclaiming. Remember, this was a Christ hater, and his interaction with Jesus was so powerful, so life-transforming, that he is now going throughout the entire Mediterranean region, as far as he can go, sharing the gospel. He is being shipwrecked. He is being stoned. He is being arrested. He is being beaten, robbed, betrayed. And yet he continues to share this message. It is so powerful. Our hope is in the resurrection of Christ and we will be resurrected. And I am so thankful that I can trust my salvation and trust my eternal hope on these facts and not feelings. It is a fact. Now this fact leads me to hope in the rapture of the church that I don't want to die I have a healthy fear of death. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm gonna, what's going to happen to me. I do not want my body thrown into a fireplace. 
although if my soul is separated, I won't have a boat. But that being said, I have a good, healthy fear of it. And so I pray for the rapture. And that's what Paul is writing here in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. You know, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he's speaking of the rapture. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Always be with the Lord with new bodies. The Bible tells us that he is going to transform us. Now, you may be just intellectually like, oh, okay, that sounds like a good idea. That's nice. No, he's going to transform you. You are going to be there. I will be there with you in the presence of God. We will be caught up in the heavens. We will be in the presence of the Lord. And it's not something that we can earn. He's going to give it to us freely. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, Paul is writing these words. He says, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. He is going to transform us. Do you guys remember what Solomon wrote when he was absent from God? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Now we're going to apply this. We are going to live for eternity. Do you know what that means? That means that every pain you've ever experienced, every sorrow, every tear, every failure, every sickness, every loss, every joy, every laugh, every reunion, every breath, every child that you've raised or or dealt with, it has meaning. It's not going to disappear from everlasting to everlasting in the presence of God. You have been created and you have a purpose and you have an eternity. And so Paul says, where death, where is your victory? There is no overcoming the Christian. And it is ours. It is our hope. It is our life. You have not lived a wasted life. It has purpose. In Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, that prophecy is written there. It says, he will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people will be taken away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. He will wipe away tears from all faces. Do you realize that Christ himself will touch your face and wipe your tears? Christ, You will see him face to face. If, you're di- if you die or you're raptured, when you're struggling with those doubts, when you're struggling in life, when you're asking those questions that man has been asking for millennia, for centuries, the answer is Christ. The answer is Jesus, our Jesus. He went into the grave and he rose and he showed us the way, as it said in Philippians, he will transform our bodies the way he transformed his. And Paul would write later, that which our, I think it was James, I'm sorry, that which our hands has handled, our eyes have seen, our ears have heard. They experienced him. And they said they would follow him. Not just on this earth, but also into eternity. That is our hope. That is our Lord. 
We cannot be defeated in death. The resurrection is our resurrection. Our corruptible will be cast off this body and we will put on incorruptible, that which cannot be destroyed. And so I, le- I save these last few verses. They're so important. Verses 56 through 58, because they're, they're our take-home verses. They're for us as much as for the Corinthians. The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Not in vain. It's not in vain. Everything that you're suffering, every doubt, every difficulty, every tear, It's not in vain. Every moment you spend with the Lord, every prayer, every time in your word, the different fellowships, the betrayals you've been through, the difficulties, it's not in vain. You're not alone. The doubts, they come. The temptations, they come. There's nothing new under the sun that is true. And yet our Lord is the victorious conqueror. We are not the victorious conqueror. He is, but he is our Lord. And so why is Paul giving this encouragement? Because they needed to be encouraged the same way that you need to be encouraged. We are to be steadfast, immovable. But that doesn't mean that we are the source of the strength. We are immovable because we are on the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ himself. That he is going to perform this work as we trust in him by faith, whether we have earned it or not, whether we did it or not. We're not good enough to receive this. But he has conquered death, and so shall we. We must look to Jesus. And Jesus told us in John chapter 14, verse 19, A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you will live also. Because this life has purpose, we live it to the fullest because we are not scared to lose our lives, because we don't worship our lives. We worship the life giver. Yes, one day we will cast off this tent. It won't be pretty. It it will be difficult. But when we read these words together, our hope and our faith is in Christ and not in ourselves. We can trust in our resurrection Not everybody else's resurrection, not the church. No, no, you can trust in your resurrection because it is his resurrection. Where he goes, we will follow. Where he is now, we will follow him. He is at the right hand of the Father. We will be in his throne room in our glorious new bodies. We will rule and reign with him. We will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. He will wipe the tears from your face. And I pray that you will hear these glorious words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the grace of our Lord from everlasting to everlasting. And so Paul, because of his experiences with Christ, his experiences with the apostles, because of his seeing Jesus Christ face to face and seeing the miracles and understanding, he writes these words in Philippians chapter 3. Yet indeed, I also count all things for loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, verse 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's the power of his resurrection. When you were baptized, you were placed into the water, you were put into the grave, and then what happened? The pastor leave you there? I pray, I pray he didn't. Some of you may be a little tra- traumatized. He pulled you up. Why did he pull you up? Because you rose from the grave spiritually, and one day your body will come from the grave. Just as he came from the grave, so shall we. It's his resurrection. It's our resurrection. I want you to look once again. We are going to be steadfast and immovable. We're going to be abounding in the work of the Lord because of verse 57. But we're going to change the words a little bit. Verse 57, well, let's change the word us to me. But thanks be to God who gives me the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You will be victorious because he is victorious. One day you'll look him face to face and you'll know it was all worth it. It all had a purpose. The pagan, the non-believer has no hope aside from Christ. Our hope is in the resurrection of Christ. And because he rose, we shall rise also. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your resurrection is our resurrection. And as Paul wrote in Philippians 3, Lord, we also want to identify with that resurrection. I thank you so much. You didn't leave us with a vain philosophy, Lord. You left us with historical facts, with eyewitness accounts. I pray that I would hang my hope on your work and not my own. I pray for us here that we would not labor in vain, Lord, but that we would labor for your glory and for your work. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer, come on up. We'd love to pray with you. Get your fill of pancakes this morning. God bless you and have a wonderful week.